0: Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of the Darkling Podcast, the Dark Days Radio sister show covering in-depth topics, listener-generated content, and cool non-World of Darkness games. Tonight we have Adrian and Steve's latest foray into the Dark Ages, uh, specifically covering the role of elders in the time of tumult. So, let's hear what they have to say, and I'll meet you guys after their lengthy discussion.
1: So, welcome, Darker Days listeners, to the third installment of the Darklings surrounding Vampire the Dark Ages. Now, as we said last time, the Vampire the Dark Ages discussion that we were having went on for just a little bit too long, so we've decided to break this episode, being one on Elders, into its own fully-fledged episode. Now, most of you would know me as Adrian, or Boggan Knight, from the Posturus Forums and also from the White Wolf Forums, and I am also joined tonight by...
2: My name's Steve, otherwise known as Vergas, also from the Posterous Pages. How you doing, Adrian?
1: Very well, very well. Now, I'm not tearing you away from the coverage of the Olympics to be here, am I, Steve? Well,
2: let's face it, mate, I am a role player. Do you think I'm really that interested <laughs> in sport? <laughs> it comes with the territory, doesn't it? Yes, mate. I think um, it definitely does. Yes, yes.
1: I'm I'm sure that there will be something decent in terms in terms of the Olympics coverage. It just I probably won't be there to see it.
2: Well, unless they bring out Olympic D twenty rolling or something like that, I won't be watching. I don't think.
1: Well, why why isn't role playing an Olympic sport? Oh,
2: because it's not really a sport. <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably also because it's not competitive as
2: well. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true.
1: So what have you been doing with yourself over the last month, Steve?
2: Well, I've been really busy at work, but uh, I did have an opportunity this week to play uh, the Call of Cthulhu board game again this week because my normal role-play session kind of fell to pieces because a few people didn't turn up. And I've got to say I've got a lot of love for that game at the minute, Adrian.
1: Is that the one from Fantasy Flight Games?
2: It is, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a little bit on the expensive side, I've got to tell you that straight off the bat, but you get a lot of bang for your buck, I tell you that.
1: So several several kilos worth of dice, tokens and all that sort of stuff What we've come to expect from those sorts of board games
2: Yeah, and uh, some quite finely crafted miniatures as well There's a couple of big things in there, I think they're called Shogoths. They're about the same kind, kind of size as a uh, a Dreadnought from Warhammer fantasy, uh, sorry, 40k
1: Wow, okay, so fairly decent sized stuff
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, a range of miniatures in between there as well So quite a lot for your money, like I said And you were talking about the,
1: was it the puzzle cards? I've only just caught up on the last episode of Darker Days, and I think it was you that was talking about puzzle cards?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, In the Chronicle design darkening that I was doing with Chris... That's the one. ...we were... We were talking about how you can use puzzles from other games, and this is uh, the reference I drew, that when you come to locked doors or locked boxes, or different bits and pieces on the board, sometimes you have to solve problems. And they're often like rotating card pieces to form a circuit to open an electronic door or something Mm -hmm. like this. Quite uh, simple little things that you can lay down in front of people and give them a few goes to have a go at. Your your character in that game represents how many times you can add in or turn cards. So uh, quite intelligent characters have more opportunities to uh, solve these things than just put the fort in the more kind of fighter sorts.
1: That's actually a really cool mechanic because one of the things that I've struggled with with pretty much about any game is that when you get somebody who says, "Well, I'm going to play the genius Tremier with five dots in intelligence," but the player is actually as you know thick as a post, um, and how you how you actually then translate the fact that that you know you might not be as intelligent as your character.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I've got, it, Like I said, I've got a lot of love for that game in a minute. Hmm.
1: I'll have to check it out, because I've loved the Cthulhu role-playing game for ages, but, uh, but uh, being able to just play the, the board game, as you said, it's a bit of a, a stand-in if the rest of your party doesn't show up. That's a pretty cool use for it.
2: Yeah, and uh, there's uh, quite a number of missions inside, so uh, you can never play the same game twice. Okay, so value for money. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So what have you been up to, Adrian?
1: Um, well, at the moment, I've been catching up a lot on reading this month. I've, I've not done an awful lot beyond beyond sort of lurking about the posture of sight and, uh, and reading through a lot of my old World of Darkness books at the moment, catching up on some of the Changeling stuff that I haven't read for a very long time. And the other thing that I've been doing is going through a few of the Old World of Darkness novels. So at the moment I'm reading through the Grails Covenant trilogy, because I thought that would probably be useful, seeing as how we were talking Dark Ages.
2: Yeah, um, we talked about that a little while ago over emails. I've got to say I picked it up for my Kindle, and I've got to say I'm struggling with it, Adrian. I don't really like that, I've got to say.
1: It really does suffer from being... A gaming novel. Uh, I don't usually have massively high expectations when I'm going into a gaming novel. The second book in particular is a bit slow and it does feel a little bit forced. Uh so I'm finishing off book three at the moment and uh because I, I read these when they first came out and according to book three here, I'm just looking in the middle in the front, sorry, here, and it was released in ninety eight. So I think my tastes in reading have changed since then somewhat. But yeah, it's it is a bit difficult to find really gripping gaming fiction.
2: Yeah, and this is something I've always struggled with, to be honest. That, uh, gaming fiction is always around. There's one or two good things that I've picked up, but I don't really get into the uh, the novels or anything like that. Not for any, uh, any you know, disrespect to the writers or anything like that. I, I couldn't write anything like this, I'm sure. But it just doesn't feel like the game for me, or the kind of game that I'd like to portray, in the lines that it's been written about.
1: Mm, mm. no I do have to agree I mean the place that gaming fiction actually fills for me is that when I get a new game and you read through the rules and you read through all the source books and say to yourself okay I understand mechanically how this works but how does the actual game world live and breathe and how do people actually act and behave Um, one of the reasons why I got into the Shadowrun novels in a big way was that I read through Shadowrun and I just thought this is such a fantastic place but how does it actually work and then I read the novels and that gives you a bit of a perspective um you know from people within the world on how this works so really that's the only expectation that I have when I go into a novel is a bit of an
2: insight into how the game world works oh, that's that's a useful technique I might uh, go into looking at game novels with uh, new eyes hmm. so thanks for that hmm. thanks for that
1: And obviously, um, I do go into them with the idea that I can um, just steal with gay abandon any ideas that might actually happen to come across my way.
2: Yeah, of course. Remember, the plagiarism is the first tool of the GM. (laughs) (laughs) Imitation is
1: the sincerest form of flattery.
2: Yeah, like, that's just a posh way of saying what I just said. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it just legitimises it. (laughs) (laughs) I I work for a university, so words like plagiarism are just deeply, deeply uncomfortable.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's not copying.
1: (laughs) Now we're here to talk about elders, obviously, and as much as I would love to spend the rest of the night talking about gaming fiction and the like, that might have to be another darkling for another time. Now, yeah. we've got a, a good running sheet uh, to hopefully see us through over the next, I don't know, maybe hour or so worth of discussion around Elders. But I thought the first question that I'd pitch to you, Steve, was that why does Dark Ages warrant its own episode on Elders? What makes Elders such a, such a hot topic for the Dark Ages campaign?
2: Well, for me, I think it's uh, a twofold answer to that question. Uh, the first is uh, for the first time, at character creation. You can make PCs that are seventh generation. Now, it was always hinted uh, in the canonical uh, part of Vampire the Masquerade that eighth generation was just on the burgeoning part of Elder, but wasn't truly an Elder. Now, when you had the first, for the first time, uh, the ability to play these things, it was in um, Dark Ages that it was a character creation. There was mechanics in masquerade for becoming elders I think there's um, Elysium the Elder Wars and then later on there was uh, the Storyteller's Handbook Mm -hmm. uh, that that allowed you to flesh these things out but Dark Ages was the first to make it straight away legitimised if you know what I mean
1: yeah it was part of the core experience
2: yeah yeah Uh, And the other part, I think, is the age of the elders that are movers and shakers at this time are far older than they are in the modern era. Now, you have uh, elders in the Dark Ages where antiquity is where they were probably embraced. So it's just like taking a step backwards in time and therefore taking a step backward along the lines of the generations. So elders are far more powerful, far more... Mysterious because these elders are more like uh, Methuselahs mm-hmm. rather than, rather than uh, what we would consider elders. So, this is an interesting thing that we need to uh, look at because Dark Ages was the first to kind of look at this backward step and looking backwards through history. So, how did you feel about that, Adrian?
1: I'd have to agree because, I mean, it was one of the things that immediately uh, drew my attention when I read through Vampire Dark Ages the first time. And it was suddenly a case of this seventh generation, which was always quite mystical, especially if you were from the sort of era of gamer that started off with the Chicago Chronicles. And uh, generally in the Chicago Chronicles, you were advised not to play the full five dots in, in generation to play eighth. So you, you were very much used to playing sort of around the tenth as being quite powerful. And then most of the NPCs were these incredibly powerful eighth and seventh generation vampires. Uh, people like Loden, um, obviously was, was a name that resonated. And then when you suddenly come into dark ages and you were then given the, carte blanche to take your five dots in generation and you could play the equivalent generation of these really powerful iconic characters it did give you a bit of pause at that stage to say well do i want to allow this in my game but obviously the answer is well yes definitely it's it's part of the game so why not allow the pcs to experience everything there is out there from the NPC's point of view, yeah, definitely, uh, we're talking about elders who, as you said, antiquity or even Rome uh, and, and the fall of Rome is not that far behind. But when you say to a modern audience that you have encountered an elder who remembers the days of Caesar... Then obviously we index that against whatever the, the current year is for us, not necessarily putting ourselves completely in the shoes of our, our character and saying, "Hey, that's still impressive, but even more so if you if you indexed against today's date."
2: And I was just to say, I agree totally with you there, Adrian, that that gravity is something that really shines through in the Dark Ages.
1: The third arm of this is that it gives the writers the opportunity to incorporate some characters who were just names in the background as now actual movers and shakers of the world at this stage. So the one that I always point to, of course, is Mithras, uh, the Prince of London. Now, he's unfathomably old, also, in terms of generation, extremely powerful, but is still awake and active. Uh, and that I think is is the main difference is that you hear about these these almost godlike powerful preachers in the modern nights, but it's usually prefaced with but they're in torpor or they have retreated from the world. Whereas in dark ages, these are forces to be reckoned with because they're awake and they have their own agendas.
2: Yeah, definitely, and uh, especially if you take into account there was always that hint as well that uh, the truly ancient could no longer drink human blood. They had to drink the blood of vampires, which gave these uh, ancient creatures, even to quite powerful vampires at the time, uh, like boogeymen status. Mm. So uh, it, it makes it even it, even uh, like that sense of uh, Gehenna. Is, uh, is, uh, is, is, I felt was, was was more prevalent in the Dark Ages because these creatures, like you say, these powerful creatures, you could see them moving around, you could see their actions quite clearly being played upon the stage. But by the time you get to Dark, uh, by the time you get to Modern Nights, these creatures are, like you say, legends. And, you know, Gehenna was always treated with a bit of like, oh, is it really real? Until it became really real.
1: Yes, that was actually something which I found amusing when I was reading through the revised Storyteller's Handbook, which I'll index for a couple of the discussions tonight. But they have a little sidebar on Gehenna and using it in your game, and in that sidebar it says, you know, we we have no intentions whatsoever of ever releasing the definitive Gehenna source book, so you're just going to have to make all this stuff up yourself.
2: (laughs) Um, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so I,
1: I have now through, through sort of pure, uh, perversity, I now just shelve my vampire storyteller's handbook next to my copy of Gehenna. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but just, just out of perversity. Yes. <laughs> uh, and for those of you at home who might like to follow on tonight, the source books that we are going to lean on for a lot of this discussion will be the Vampire Storytellers Handbook, also the Dark Ages main rulebook, and as Steve mentioned beforehand, he'll be using his copy of Elysium the Elder Way. I don't know if you ever remembered, Steve, um, as, as a kid, I used to have a lot of the, the the movie picture books for kids, and they came with a cassette, and you would, uh, I remember one of them, which was Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you'd pop your cassette in and the narrator would say, you will know that it is time to turn the page when you hear Indies bull whip crack like this. Uh, so hopefully as we go through our discussion, we won't need to say, you know, you will know that it is time to turn the page when you hear the screaming of humanity.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant.
1: <laughs> so we'll we'll
2: we'll talk about
1: things in general terms rather than just, you know, leaning too heavily on page numbers here.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: So that brings me to my next question, which is how do we actually define an elder in this term? Given the fact that you're able to create a seventh generation character straight off the bat who was embraced last week, how do you define elder?
2: Well, I think that elder, again, is a, a, a two-faced answer. Now, to be a true elder, you both need a lower generation than is kind of like normal, So, slightly beyond the the PC's kind of level. And also, you need to be around for a long time. Uh, Even if you're embraced yesterday and you are sixth, seventh, fifth generation, you would still be in the owner. Because you wouldn't know anything about vampiric society. You wouldn't know all these kind of years and years of experience of politics and of watching the world and seeing how politics and devious machinations work. You'd just be as 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 uh, weak in the world as a thirteenth generation vampire in the modern setting. Being an elder is also that, that weight of years upon you, this, this, this uh, you know, being around for a long time. So you get, you know, like an honorific elder. You don't just give it to somebody who's was born yesterday, do you? So.
1: No, I have a tendency to agree with that because I think that there has to come with it, again, you know, that great power comes great responsibility. And if you are a 7th gen embraced last week, then you've got... I think that what you've got there is the potential and that perhaps because obviously your sire is now sixth generation, they would probably have quite a strong, powerful name for themselves in vampiric society. So I think that one of the big things that you've got to do in Dark Ages is is that if you do open that up and say, well, hey, let's have an entire coterie of seventh generation vampires, and you do want to go down that route of uh, making them neonates, then I think you've got to really spend a lot of time fleshing out the backstory for their sires uh, who their size are because their size are going to be the who's who of vampiric society.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, these are the people in your game that have got to have the gravitas behind them. like you say the movers and shakers, and uh, any any player that wants to have a hand in that needs needs to have these people behind him to, to have that gravitas. Otherwise, he's just a nobody, isn't he? One thing I was thinking about this morning was how elders are. Sometimes used as a, a kind of a, a building block around a coterie. So if you have a tr- uh, somebody you know you can trust, that won't abuse the power of being slightly older than the rest of the PCs, you could say to one of your players, "Hey, you become the seventh generation, and the rest of the party makes the kind of coterie or group of, of, of people around this elder that are his uh, trusted, trusted agents or children." And allow the party to have, like, that leader character. Now, this ties into what uh, Chris was talking about in the Chronicle Design Darkling uh, a couple of episodes ago, about using a Gandalf figure or a mentor figure and sometimes using a PC or somebody who's played the game uh, a lot that can show newer players, this is the way we go, and give him that slightly elevated status before you begin.
1: Mm, mm. I do like that idea of, uh, of finding the trusted player. Um, that's actually discussed, I'm pretty sure, if you grab a hold of the Old Order Darkness book Templars and Archons, and uh, they've got the idea in there of running an Archons game, and they've said that if you have got a group that you really do honestly trust, then you could even go so far as to have one of the players playing the Justicar, and then the rest of the players playing their Archons, and that gives you an excuse then to build a group of characters who are quite different because each one of them brings a specialised skill set or a particular facet of their character that the Justicar finds incredibly useful. And I think that you could translate that concept straight across here with this Elder and then their agents, and obviously the Elder has recruited them for a reason, and because it's Vampire, you don't have to tell the players what that reason is. Uh, that reason can come out through gameplay, and the, the Elder may actually turn out to be you know, not as, as nice an individual as, as everyone first perhaps thought.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the ideas you can spin off on that are multitudinous, so uh, that's just another way that you can look at Elders.
1: Mm, mm. And the thing that I think would make that uh, fit in the Dark Ages really well is that if you look, when we were talking about the the medieval mindset where most people are quite scared of anything which is unknown or foreign and that they haven't travelled too far away from their village, if you have an elder who was, say, embraced in, say, Greece, a couple of thousand years ago then their mannerisms the way in which they look obviously they're going to look very very different if you set your game in a small village in the middle of england then this person will draw a lot of attention to, to themselves just due to their ethnicity they might have actually gathered a group and they're there hands in the modern world because all of these other seventh generation vampires just blend that they know the world they know how to behave and they're accepted by mortals so that that could be another idea that you could definitely riff off
2: yeah definitely um something else that i was thinking about in the uh the week when we were having our first discussion about this is um having a look at how some elders are born outside of the time when Christianity was nothing but a a burgeoning cult out of Judea, Mm -hmm. a province of Rome, you know, a nowhere, somewhere that's on the very edges of society. If they fell into Torpor and, say, the height of the Roman Empire, and then came um, back into the world in the Dark Ages, suddenly this you know, spin-off sect of Judaism has suddenly become the world's most dominant religion in Europe. If you have no ideas what the tenets of that religion are or how you're supposed to blend into society, you'd need agents fairly quickly to um, uh, make sure you blend it into society and also take take control of something like this because most elders would see the church as being, you know, a a, a mighty prize to be in control of, but something that I don't think they'd want to get too close to themselves
1: yeah definitely definitely it's it's that whole idea that the the church is a is a great and all consuming fire and if you get too close to that fire well we all know what happens to vampires yep mm mm the other idea that I used in a Victorian age vampire game uh, was the idea that the player characters had actually inherited a position and a house, but you could easily change this to a keep or a monastery or, or an equivalent type of place in the Dark Ages. Through the course of the game, they realised that their sires had actually disappeared rather suddenly and that people were, were looking around to try and find the location that they'd actually inherited. And through gameplay, they actually found that what their sires did was had a very tight-knit, close group of other Elders who all, I, I wouldn't say trust because that's too strong a word for Elders, but they were all had an agreement that when they entered Torpa, that this place, this location, would be a safe house where they could reasonably expect it to be secure and that they could be defended if anything showed up. And so the, the PCs eventually discovered that underneath this house was this massive, sprawling cellar, uh, and they were in possession of a number of elders who were currently in Torpor. Uh, So something like that as well, bringing the idea that these are alien creatures that require an awful lot of sleep from time to time. If you were one of those creatures, you would very much want to have a bit of a think about how your body was going to be kept safe from harm. So the the idea of even spreading that across medieval Europe and having maybe a string of monasteries or something like that would be a a really good way to, to draw these characters in and give them a lot of responsibility from the outset.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely, which gives you, like you said, a, a starting point for the group to have a common goal, which is sometimes a problem in uh, Vampire, that you have all these wonderful characters that are all dedicated in many different directions with players coming to you with good ideas about how they want to do this, how they want to do that. But no common goal, that they all share to go in one direction.
1: Now, I'm going to let my subversive streak come out again. And uh, when we were talking about, you know, what does, uh, what actually constitutes an elder? We've, we've agreed that both age and generation are required for you to be truly considered an elder. What about the newer clans in the Dark Ages? So if we take the Tremere, for example, who were embraced about 180 years before the beginning of the setting. Now obviously Tremere himself is a, is a third generation vampire who is only 180 years old. And you've got the council, so people like Gora Trix and Linda who, who are the fourth generation, are equivalent age. Uh, do you think that this has any sort of social play that you can get out of when you're portraying this
2: clan? Oh, definitely. I mean, the the Tremere at this time are known as the usurpers, aren't they?
0: Mm. They are.
2: If if anything, if they are mistrusted in modern nights, they are mistrusted and hated in the Dark Ages, uh, normally across the board, because the Shimizi, or the Zimiti, depending on your pronunciation, uh, are prevalent much more in normal vampiric society because the Sabbat hasn't split up, and their hatred of the uh, Tremere kind of crystallises the rest of uh, vampiric societies look at the Tremere to begin with. It's only when the Tremere become useful after the kind of uh, Anarch revolt that they become grudgingly accepted. So I think they're idea that they stole the, uh, the the Vitae from Salot to become an antediluvian. So he's not really an antediluvian. He's a deharmonist. And that, mm-hmm. that then poisons the uh, the status of the rest of his clan. Because the rest of these uh, vampires, no matter how you look at things, uh, the traditions are there for a reason. Because otherwise they'd just be outright chaos. And, you know, It says quite clearly, do not go around sucking each other's blood. You know, Don't do it. And this is how they burst onto the scene and make themselves known. So straight away they're, you know, mistrusted. And, you know, they're they're youthful elders that are probably uh, running around Europe with a lot more vigour than normal elders. gives them a a strange kind of uh, feel to them as well. So they become even more mistrusted.
1: Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that before. The idea that, obviously... If you're playing a, a 1000 year old elder, then, then you're, you're starting to succumb to that, that, well, you're probably already well and truly succumb to that boredom, uh, of things which, uh, everything kind of looks the same. You can start to spot the patterns and the cycles in human behavior and history. Whereas if we're only talking less than two centuries old and they have got all of this, you know, almost limitless power through their diablerie, then I suppose that the Tremere are going to be a lot more active than a lot of the other clans on, on the world stage, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think so, definitely. Mm. And I think that that, uh, that lends, again, to their mistrust. So it seems that every step that the Tremere take, it just reinforces the uh, the social perception of their clan.
1: No, I like that, I like that. I think that I'll definitely find a way of folding that in, but uh, as, as I mentioned in uh, the discussion that we had on Clans, uh, I'm yet to actually have somebody pick up the mantle of uh, Tremere in a Dark Ages game, and I think more's the Pity is how I actually look at it, but maybe I might do some subtle encouragement the next time I, I want to get a game up and running.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes, the storyteller's already plotting against you. We don't even have a game. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: dear, dear, dear. And, and there I am talking about having
2: trust at the table and two-way communication. Uh, yeah, dear. One thing that I was thinking about this week as well, Adrian, is we've talked uh, quite a lot about how you can use all these uh, elders and what they uh, are doing. But one thing that really struck me is you know, how... Are they portrayed like you're saying the uh, the weight of age is pressing upon you and you begin to see these uh, these cycles of human existence. How do you then start portraying that as a competent role player as, as you know not just I'm a I'm a Brujar elder from uh, Carthage. All right. Well, how are you a Brujar? Uh, elder from Carthage, how are you going to portray that to your players that then, you know, they get that resonance off that character and it's not just you sat on the other side of the table.
1: So I think that if you are going to portray elders within a game, then really what you've got to do is scale all the way back to the human experience of where this elder actually came from, especially if you want to run a game where the elders have come from Another place, another time, another land. And you want to really, really play up and emphasize how much older they are to the PCs. So what you're going to have to start off with, obviously, is a bit of research. And if you decide that you've got an elder who is from, let's say, from the the height of the pharaohs in Egypt, you're beholden as the storyteller to do a bit of reading and to find out what was life actually like. What did they believe in? What was their worldview shaped by? Because even though they will have had the rest of this time as a vampire to also shape their worldview... I'm one of these people that very firmly believes that who you are and what you are is very much shaped by by this human experience. And we see it a lot in in adults, you know, a, a lot of people who say, well, this is the way in which I was raised or this was the community in which I grew up. And that kind of shapes how they are and how they behave. And I see elders as no different to that. So if you're going to have somebody like your example, uh, Steve, where you have your fellow from ancient Rome who was up and active during pre-Christian times, has suddenly woken up in the Middle Ages, there's a massive element here of man out of time that you can play up for this elder. I think that what you can do then is to show that they are a very, very different person by bringing in some of their mannerisms, by bringing in some of their beliefs, and even having them question a lot of the things that the the players uh, may have their characters take for granted, the last thing that I would consider is to also consider their humanity. Now, an elder, by virtue of who they are and what they are, will probably not be ranking too highly if you take a look at the humanity chart. They're probably going to be idling down quite quite low on that. And I think that if you get into that headspace of what they are and aren't willing to do because of what they consider to be acceptable behaviour, that starts to make them more unknowable. And when you are presenting an Elder, I think there should always be that element there of the PC saying, we can kind of understand him but we're not entirely certain there's something about him that is not quite right. And, and portraying that sort of alien inhumanness of elders is something that you've got to work really hard to achieve.
2: Yeah, this is something that uh, I was reading about in uh, Elysium that really struck home for me when I first got this book back in the day. I my, mean, my, my copy is old and battered, all the uh, the kind of uh, the covers are all worn up, because this is something I keep going back to. That there's a, uh, In one of the chapters, there's a, a kind of made-up medical report by an illustrator, just to cut the course, about something called Aflotoxis. Which is basically what you just said, the weight of kind of ages pushing upon you begins to change your psyche in subtle ways. And then as your humanity begins to descend, your morality begins to be eroded, that begins to change your perceptions. But you're still essentially the same person, only slightly changing and then changing until eventually over say, a course of 500 years, 1,000 years, you are something similar but not quite the same as when you were alive. But, uh, that's a really thing that I wanted to get across about Elders, something that really struck home for me, that they were, like you said, once human, but now some of them are, I mean, especially if you take certain plans, like uh, this Shimizy, you know, if you, you look at some of those guys, they are truly inhuman.
1: And there, there's no frame of reference for that. There really isn't. So, I mean, you've got to really think about the idea that they are very, very much removed now, quite paradoxically, uh, given the, the, the core idea of vampire is about retaining your humanity and, and exploring what it is that makes us human. The elders are an interesting case because they are very clearly not human.
2: Yeah, and sometimes you can uh, use certain elders as, this is what will happen to you if you follow this path. Or if you follow this course of action, because this is what he's done in the past and this is where he's led into you know, the idea of uh, you know what you find acceptable. I mean, somebody say from ancient Rome, some of their rituals by our standards today are quite horrific. I think there's one where uh, they kill a, a, a bull over somebody before they go to battle. So they're literally trenched in the blood of the bull. And that's supposed to be, you know, that, that to us would be like, whoa, whoa, that's, you know, most people would find that truly horrific. But to ancient Romans, that's, that's fine. That's mm. something that's commonplace. So imagine somebody whose perception has been skewed from a society like that. What they would then find that was, you know, uh, I mean, remember, a lot of elders slip into doing horrific things out of boredom and they want to do things to amuse themselves. Uh, and that perversion of their morality, you know, then has a, an even greater effect on humanity. So what the lengths they go to, or the things that they do, would be, you know, changed over time. And like I say, if you used somebody say, from a Roman standpoint, and then go backwards from where they they you know, they do things that other Romans would find truly horrific or scarring, that'd be quite interesting to know what that would be like.
1: It also highlights the idea that elders think in very very different ways. If you're of sort of 500, 700, even 1,000 years old, then the way in which you think is going to be very different to the PCs. They may have what they consider to be long-term plans. And realistically, when you talk to them and say, well, what's what's your you know estimated time of arrival for for your success in this project and they might say oh wow you know i reckon maybe a couple of decades and i might i might have achieved this so this is my long term plan elders don't think in that way they've they've gotten to the point now where it's a, it's a little shuffle here and a little move here and then maybe in six or seven centuries time everything will come to fruition so it can often be quite confronting to figure out why they are acting in the way that they are, why they might be asking the PCs to be doing particular things, or even if the PCs unwittingly put themselves in the way of an Elder's plans, the way in which they can respond can often make no sense whatsoever.
2: Yeah, I agree with that, because of the uh, the gulf between understanding between the two NPCs, or even a PC and an, and an NPC, but that then that ties again into this idea that elders should be should have that air of mystery about them don't you think oh definitely definitely that their their uh, their working should not be so he did this then he did that then he did this and then he got that that's like you say that's not how elders work like you say their their thought patterns and their slow process of gaming i mean this is one thing that they talked about in the, the storytellers handbook about how using elders over the long game so you've like your uh, very interesting-sounding Giovanni Chronicles game that led you to the modern nights, that kind of game, something truly epic.
1: I mean, one of the things that stands out to me as, as um, a really effective tool that worked in that game was the idea that the elders um, don't often have emotional attachments to an awful lot of things, and certainly not the PC's. Uh, what they will have emotional attachments to can sometimes be quite different and often strange. Uh, and one of the things that, that worked really, really nicely um, and caused quite a lot of discussions within our group was the party managed to make an enemy of Ambrogino Giovanni. Uh, during the course of the the Giovanni Chronicles, and he's not a very nice individual. If you read up on a lot of the stuff that he is into, he he does things which makes the, the Giovanni occasionally go, oh, wow, hey, no, wait a minute, you've gone a little bit too far there. And he actually started to play the long game with the party and collected the souls of a few of the people who meant an awful lot to the party and then started using them as bargaining chips to get them to either work for him or in one case, he actually went to the party and I picked my knight correctly when the player of the Gangrel was not actually there in the room. He couldn't make it to that game, so I thought, perfect opportunity. And Ambrogino approached the rest of the party and said, listen, um, I have the soul of the one woman that he loved 300 years ago. I have let him know that I've got that soul, and he's known for the past couple of years. And on the side, he has been doing things for me in the hope that he will eventually get that soul back. Discuss amongst yourselves whether or not you can still trust him. And then he left. (laughs) Now, obviously, they, they had a whole game where that poor player was not present to discuss how likely it was that he was betraying the party. And they knew the depth of love that this character had had for this individual 300 years in the past because he was still carrying a torch for her. And and then they suddenly said, well, wait a minute, you know, Ambrogino is enough of a conniving, nasty individual that he could probably do this. That's behaviour consistent with what we've seen. Um, It's horrible, horrible stuff, but it's certainly consistent. And they then started to question each other's loyalty just based around that. Now, the only reason that Ambrosino did that was that he was pulling off a few things within the city that the PCs had called home, and he didn't want them to be concentrating on him. He wanted them to be arguing amongst themselves for a couple of nights so he would have the peace and quiet just to do this one thing and then leave. Uh, and that's the sort of stuff that I tried to weave into the chronicle. And then obviously the PCs find out about this much,
2: much later. That's that sounds awesome. I wish I had a place at your gaming table for that. That's that's brilliant. <laughs> it, it it worked. It worked. I I had I had big
1: fears that all they would do is say, oh no, no, we can trust the gangrel. But then when you put that emotional tie to it, and you say, well you know he has been pining after this person and there's a really strong rationale for it suddenly it becomes a lot more believable your your lie has just enough truth in it
2: and i yeah. think that's how that's how elders really do operate that's uh that's uh, like i say that's brilliant agent that's really really brilliant
1: the other thing that i would do is is also point out the fact that even though elders are accessible during this time of history that they are certainly out there and active. There's a difference between accessible and being allowed to knock on their door for advice. And whereas I mentioned Mithras beforehand, I wouldn't imagine that there's too many opportunities in London for people to be able to knock on the door of the Elysium and say, is Mithras here? I'd like to pop in and get some advice and talk to him about the the current plot. Uh, Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to hit up against, you know, his seneschal, uh, Camden, uh, the the, the Cappadocian, and he will manage on behalf of uh, Mithras. So, again, that's putting them in the setting and letting them be visible, but then there should be layers between them and the PCs.
2: Definitely. Like you say, uh, there's also that idea as well that... um Elders some are sometimes, uh, especially, say, from the Ventrue, the Taurid, or they have this idea of being kind, uh, kingly or royalty, this, or reinforcing this idea that there's a kind of vampiric royalty there. I mean, in the Liber Sanguinius, the first one is called the Masters of the State, and that just deals with, uh, I think, the, the Sombra, the Ventrue, and the Shimazi. I'm not quite sure. I'd have to get it off the shelf, but it's a long way away. the the clans at that time were split into uh, different kind of ideas, like the the keepers of the world, the wolves uh, at the door, the thieves uh, in the night, this idea that um, you can't just, like you say, walk up to certain characters, knock on their door, and say, sup, what's going on? Because there is that kind of idea that they are not better than everyone else, you know, they are elders treated with respect. This is sometimes a Uh, something that's not really portrayed in modern nights because there's uh, this idea that, you know, Lodin's just sat in Sears Tower. You can just go up there, you're right, I just wanted to talk to you about this. Even in that, sometimes you should uh, have this idea that you can't just walk in and say, hi, what's going on?
1: And I suppose as well that because you actually have to make the physical trip to a location. It's not like the modern nights where you might be able to leave a voicemail message or send them an email or a fax or something. Lord alone knows why you have an elder's email address. But uh, that aside, there is that sort of then makes it a much more personal experience that you've got to physically travel to this location. The elders don't just you know open court and say, well, come on down and on the third Tuesday of every month I'll make myself available and everyone can just drop in for a chat or I'll dispense some clues um, for the module that you're currently working through. That's not really what we want. Whereas we might have discussed them a little bit as the Gandalf character, we don't necessarily want them to become the crutch that the PCs go to every time that they've got a bit of trouble, because I think that robs the Elder of a lot of their mystery and a lot of their grandeur if you simply use them as the the go-to person.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. And you can use that um, as a storytelling technique to add something into your campaign that they have to perhaps convince the Seneschal Uh, To get in contact with uh, Mithras To perhaps have a private audience You have to do something for him To him go to his boss to set something up for you Mm. Uh, And then that's another facet of a story That you can add into something that's quite epic Like one of your sweeping campaigns There's just another facet that adds to that level of uh, detail And if you do that all the time The group would already know Before they go to most elders Well do we really want to go and talk to this guy Because he's got the answers Or should we see if we can figure it out for ourselves first because we'll end up having to do something really that we don't want to do.
1: I like that idea of of then having to do something for the go-between between you and the Elder in order for them to do the job for you, because what it then does is it builds up a level of actual value to the interaction with the Elder. If you can just simply walk in the door, then you don't value that interaction and I took the idea, uh, very much from werewolf, where when you're going to another werewolf that accepts the Khan, there is the idea of shimminage, where you take something of value, and there is a social more around this, that you take something of value to the other sept, and you present it to them out of respect for the fact that you have been allowed into their khan. Now, for the set of the Little White Feet in New York, that's as simple, because it's run by the Bone Norahs, that's as simple as you're expected to bring an offering of food so that the Bone have enough to eat. But, again, because you can't simply walk into the place, um, I've had a lot of times where you know most of my wealth games are set in New York, where... The, the PCs have said, okay, cool, the best person to answer this question is actually Mother Larissa. We need to get down there and do this, but suddenly they all stop. However, we've got to get something of value. We've got to take that with us. So, again, it sort of builds in a level of social interaction, but it also builds that value. And I think that's very, very important when we're dealing with elders.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Adrian.
1: So if we change tack ever so slightly, we've we talked a little bit about what sort of agendas they're they're pursuing and how we would actually portray them. What about from the PC side of the question? Okay, If, if you were running a game of Dark Ages tomorrow, would you be considering people playing the, the seventh generation Embrace last week, or would you actually be looking at PCs as Elders?
2: Now, that's an interesting question, Adrian, because I think it really depends on my players. Now, I have quite a large group that I can call upon. We call ourselves the Dicemen. It's our local group. So, sup, guys? How's it going? Um, Now, there's about seven or eight of us. Of those seven or eight people, I know that the guys I could turn to and say, I want you to play a truly ancient elder. I want you to do here, and I want you to, to get across this to the group. And they'll go away and they'll do that and not really abuse their power. They could if they wanted to, but they don't because they see that that's what you wanted in the story. There's other members of the same group. I wouldn't let anywhere near this because all they want to see is extra dots on their character sheet. That's all they want to see. You know, their idea of advancing themselves in characters isn't really developing in their character. It's putting dots on a sheet. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important because you're handing... A level of responsibility to your player be, to portray the game for you to set the scene for how other elders are as well. When you were talking about before about a group of seventh generation vampires, I don't think I'd uh, I'd go with that. I think I'd uh, I'd only allow one or two to, to add that sense of depth because it'd be really no different in game mechanics than in the modern night where everything's eight to thirteen. In the dark ages, everybody's seven to uh, seven to twelve. Like I say, it depends on the player, I think. Really, really depends on the player.
1: No, I would have to agree with that. Um, I mean, I've never actually run the straight off the bat, let's create some elders, let's spend 100 experience points on a character straight up. Mine, obviously, was much more of a, a slow burn uh, sort of game where the characters um, built the persona and built the idea of their character over the course of that many years and and that many centuries in game. And one thing that was really interesting to me was that I did a quick tally up after about, I think it was about the third or fourth year of the, the, the seven years, where we had literally been playing every single fortnight. Wednesday night was Dark Ages night. And anytime time we had a public holiday, we would take that opportunity to throw an extra game in. So we, we'd round off to, to, you know, at least sort of 30 to 35 games a year. Now, after about three years, consider that, that you've been playing for that amount of time, even with a stingy storyteller like me who hands out two to three XP maximum per session, you're still looking at about, you know, a hundred sessions. So about 200 to 250 experience points on these characters. And that's, that's a hideous amount of experience when you think about it. However, what had happened was because they were spending the XP in the context of the story and in developing their own goals. They were quite well-rounded characters. We then had a couple of people who, after this time, because we had a couple of people leave, we said, okay, we've got a couple of seats at the table open. And I was then faced with the dilemma, do I give them the lump sum of 250 experience points and tell them to spend it on their character? Or am I showing blatant disrespect to the characters who have invested three years of their life in my game? And so I came to a bit of a compromise and I gave the new people coming in half of the XP that everyone else had and acknowledged the fact that how hard everyone else had worked. Mm -hmm. And the characters that I got from these two people who wanted to join in looked nothing like these well-rounded, nice, developed characters. I mean, one of them gave it to me and had two disciplines at seven. Um, he had, you know, his melee had been put up to six. Um, his strength was idling at around seven as well. He'd basically blown as many experience points as possible on making his character the unstoppable god of death. That obviously got pushed back to him uh, for a rewrite uh, because I... I felt at that stage as well that if you're going to be developing anything above five, five is the pinnacle of human achievement. So anything higher than that, disciplines included, represent a massive investment of time, and we, we had to do a lot of toing and froing with those two players to sort of set up the shared expectations. And even then, I know that one of the players for the next couple of years was a little bit disillusioned that, you know, he didn't have as many dots as everybody else. Uh, So again, it really does come down to to your players at the table uh, and knowing them and knowing what you can trust them with.
2: Yeah. um, I've had uh, a couple of people drop out of my modern night game that's been running for a while now. And a couple of new people have joined, including my kid brother. Now, They've all come, and they've entered the game as brand new characters, whereas there's other guys in the group that have had about 150 experience points. And as I said to them, you haven't been here. You don't know anything that's going on. You've got a role play like that, that, and your character should reflect that. You shouldn't really be just handing out experience points, I think, to people. Because like you say, that emotional development in your, in your character that after those games, I'm going to start spending my dots here slowly, because this is how I'm slowly building my character. as As that kind of a good a good PC, really, should evolve over a period of time. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it shouldn't be just stuck. You know, as that character slowly evolves and the experience points are spent, there's a big, like you say, a massive difference than just saying, OK, well, there's 150 experience points, because there's no emotional involvement in that. Mm. And I think that's, I, I feel justified in taking a harsher line than you, perhaps, just saying, no, guys, in you come. And they are much younger. They are much mm. younger. But it, it, it's changed the skew of the group as well, but that's for different reasons. But...
1: It very much does. The other thing as well is that don't necessarily trust your players to spend all the XP that you give them. My case in point was one fellow who played in my Changeling game, I ran the entire Immortal Eyes trilogy over a few years, and... I realized that he wasn't doing quite as well with most of his roles as everybody else. And finally, at the beginning of one game, I said to him, can I take a look at your character sheet? took a look at it, and I said, okay, I've spotted your problem, why why you're not operating at kind of the same level as everybody else. I said, take a look at your unspent experience points. Is that correct? And he said, oh, yeah, I should probably get around to spending them. And he was so involved in his character that the XP was just kind of this extra thing. And at that point, unspent on his character sheet, he had 94 experience points. (laughs) Um, But he was somebody who had gotten so into his character and so into the story that the bookkeeping side of things was just, oh, yeah, I'd better add those XP that he's given out this session, and I might do something with them eventually, but I'm just having fun right now. So um, never never necessarily assume that all of your players are going to be on the same page.
2: Well, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> all, all my players are XP junkies. They're all queuing up like the methadone clinic <laughs> at the end of the session. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Arguing with you as to why they can't get four instead of three.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they,
1: yeah. yeah. Okay, so what I would say as well is that, you know, obviously know know your players and know who's at your table. And, and I think that if you are going to go down the route of the characters as true elders, then you're going to have to invest an awful lot of time in character creation as well. This is not something where everyone just rocks up and has this idea of what they want to play and 20 minutes later they've got a character hits the table, let's play. It's got to be a much more measured approach to that. Um, I, I would assume that you'd, you'd feel similarly,
2: Steve? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, you're handing a lot of responsibility to the player. And I think that to get a, a good feedback from your players about your game allows them to have a more shared involvement in it. Like the player that sits back, sits there every week, it's like, you're enjoying it. Yeah. Anything you'd like to say, really? No, not really. And just sits there quietly. They're the hardest ones to do anything with. At least with the guys that turn up and say, I want to do this, and they oh, I want to do that, and I want to do the other. It's like, oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. All these ideas bouncing off each other, brilliant. And the game develops because of that. The worst people, like I say, are the ones that just sat there, yeah, it's great. Okay, any ideas? No, not really. (coughs) Those are are the kind of players that you wouldn't really want to give, um, perhaps, uh, elders to, because how are they going to really get involved to show what the difference between an elder and a normal kind of uh, kindred? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly.
1: Now, I've got one last question for tonight so that we can round off the discussion, and this actually came out of uh, a document that I managed to find using the Wayback Machine during the week, which is a complete book list. Of everything that was published for Old World of Darkness. Um, okay. now, now, some people might use this as a, as a checklist. My collection isn't isn't really massive, so I kind of just treat it as a shopping list at the moment. <laughs> but I did notice that in going through them that there was a series of, let's call them modules, for lack of a better word, back in 2nd edition that I'd completely forgotten about, and they were the diablerie series. The, the Bloody Hearts diablerie Britain, Awakenings diablerie Mexico, and I think there might have been a third one. When we're talking about Elders, of course... The the idea of diablerie does come up. What do you think about the possibilities of a Dark Ages diablerie game?
2: If that's what you and your players want to do, go for it. Is what I say. Have fun. I don't think I'd I'd like to play in something like that. I don't think I'd like to run something like that myself. But if it's something that somebody said, "Hey, I've got this idea," yeah, why not? Go for it. It's a it's an interesting idea that you could maraud around uh, Europe and hear about people like. Mithras and chew your way up society. Perhaps even then, getting yourself involved in uh, the formation of the Sabbat and then your uh, machinations then polluting that sect and perhaps that's where all the idea of Diablo is much more kind of socially acceptable in the Sabbat than it is the Camarilla.
1: Yeah, that's actually really cool. The idea that, that it was your characters who put the idea into their head that Diablery is a good idea.
2: The other thing as well is I think it would be a If handled correctly, it would be an interesting way to take a look at Asamites and their blood religion. And I mean, you know, I've got a lot of love for the the road of blood
0: Mm -hmm. and
2: Assamites. that you could play them and have them portrayed in a what I personally think would be the correct way. I mean, you know, my ideas is my ideas. You know, your ideas, are yours. You know, if we disagree, that's great. Let's talk about it. But you know, for me, I'd like to uh, portray atomites in a very different way than they're sometimes played as a norm. As you know, mm-hmm. as we've talked about them a few times. You could do so much with atomites in a camp in a, in a campaign like that. That they are perhaps wandering Europe, that are killing people for the betterment of other clans. And you know, the atomites were always hinted that they'd work for other people if you paid them enough blood.
1: And having sort of a... I remember playing in a con game uh, a number of years back. Uh, the idea was that the, the entire party was a coterie of Asimites for hire. And it played beautifully in a convention setting uh, because you had that immediacy of time and and the idea that this was quite a novel concept. And I've always wanted to take that idea and flesh it out as something a bit more... Because if, especially if you wanted to run a game where the, where the PCs traveled quite a bit, which is quite uncommon in the Dark Ages, but would give you a really good sort of, uh, meta scope of the world at the same time and give you a chance to introduce new locations, I, I'd really love that, uh, to just get involved in a game where, you know, every single different hit, as it were, you were going to a new location, you had to involve yourself in their culture and their customs uh, and then work out the best way to, to take down the mark. Uh, and then obviously you could start to bring in moral questions into that, especially if you found out that, for example, the person that you are slated to kill and that you have agreed to kill, you actually have a, a moral
2: objection to, to following through the job that you've been given. Especially if you begin to question the, uh, the motives of your own elders moving mm. uh, that's, that's really good. That's really yeah, good.
1: and that ties ties sort of what we were talking about with the elders in that you know the elders move in unknowable alien ways. Then that that would be a really cool campaign actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you start to question the people at the top as well,
2: I may go away and start hitting the computer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely, and and you know what you need to do? You need to run this game over Skype so that I can join in. Yeah, cool. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so is there anything that you would add to the end of this as we draw everything to a close?
2: Yeah, all I'd say is uh, if you've got any comments or feedback or anything that you'd like to think that we've missed or you think would you'd like to see uh, discuss more, you can hit us up on the Postures pages and get involved down there. Or if you're more attuned to Facebook, you can have a look there as well. And uh, I know that people can get a hold of you through your old Mirage Arcana email, can't they, Adrian? Yes, miragearcana
1: at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, and uh, people can get a hold of me at vergast at hotmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback.
1: And, of course, the big thing is that our next episode is going to be on storytelling advice, and there's a thread over at the Posterous uh, site at the moment where we've had a couple of people comment on things that they'd like us to. We've also had some emails. For example, uh, Micah uh, from Finland, we can give a, a shout-out to him, has sent us some really excellent questions about starting a Dark Ages game. So we're going to use his email to kind of flesh out and give a bit of structure to, to the discussion for the next episode but if you do have any questions that you would like answered um, then please send them through either through those email addresses or through the Postura site or even drop them on the Facebook site and we'll check there and, and harvest all of those and I would say that we're going to be recording that episode within the next few weeks so once this episode drops you probably don't have a lot of time to, to drop your questions in so move quickly That wraps it up, I think, Adrian. I certainly think that it does. So that is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me, too. Thanks for listening, everyone.
0: Right on. So elders are a uh, tough topic in vampire games because uh, as years wear on, they simply become more alien. Uh, As NPCs, I recommend using them sparingly. Uh, Keep up the mystery and uh, just kind of weird out your players sometimes but of course uh, public figures like the prince uh they're going to be in the limelight quite a bit more Uh, so try to keep them a little bit at a distance and hide their true personality uh, with either uh, dramatics or uh, maybe just kind of a stone-cold facade of a persona another feature of the dark ages setting uh, is that actually antediluvians are still active Uh, while your characters probably won't meet any outside of something like the giovanni chronicles uh, whispers of antediluvian plots can carry quite a bit of weight in the dark medieval. As a player character, uh, I think that an elder could be pretty cool as a coterie leader, as Adrian and Steve were kind of hinting towards. I ran to someone actually that ran a similar setup in First Edition Vampire. Uh, back when they didn't really know anything about the Anarch-free states, he decided that uh, Anarch gangs would be small groups of vampires working for an elder, kind of vying for power in the streets of modern Los Angeles. The same concept works great in the Dark Ages, and it's actually kind of used in Constantinople by night, although in that case it's more like proto-primogen, and their clans rather than cross-clan gangs. But perhaps one of the more defining attributes of an elder is their paranoia. Uh, These vampires typically do not function as part of a coterie, having carved out their own niche of power at this point, and uh, having their own influence in their respective city. So without close allies to rely on, pretty much every other elder or Methuselah seems like a threat, uh, not to mention that those like pesky that are trying to uh, nip at their heels, if you will. So in a lot of cases, an elder feels that if they don't go on the defensive, they'll simply look weak. So that's about all I've got to say about elders. Uh, But one last thing. If you guys have really been digging this Dark Ages discussion, I'd really like to recommend 12 Byzantine Emperors. It's a podcast by Lars Brownworth. Uh, It's a wonderful look at uh, the development of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, based in Constantinople, and covers its rise and eventual fall in the 14th century. I'll put a link in the show notes, because it's really a great podcast, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. Other than that, uh, Dark Days 40 is going to be recorded in uh, a week. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, uh, we've been getting a lot of really good uh, stuff in the mailbag, so we're pretty excited for the next episode. But if you want to give us some more, uh, send us an email over at darkdaysradio at gmail.com. If you have any comments about uh, the Dark Ages in particular, definitely uh, send us an email as well, and we'll forward it on to Adrian and Steve. So that's it. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.